Hello, I'm Simon Burton and welcome to a spring edition of Cambridge Arts Roundup where we'll hear about a controversy with the Cambridge Link over some famous artwork. We'll investigate aerial choreography for painting images with smoke in the skies and get to grips with Cambridge's future art strategy at a major conference. In this edition, Classics Professor Paul Cartledge talks on the Parthenon marbles and secret talks over returning them that may eventually impact on the Fitzwilliam Museum. I join an exhibition pilot with Cambridge Aero Club who creates large-scale images in the sky using smoke with synchronised flying in teams. And we look at the future of Cambridge's creative sector with Cambridge Arts Network Conference at Cambridge School of Art. When the sun comes up in early spring, I often look up at a clear blue sky and think how nice it would be to be in warmer climes, in Greece for instance. On my last visit there I walked around the astonishing Acropolis and Parthenon Temple and looked in awe at one of the seven wonders of the world, wondering how it might have looked when it was pristine and new representing the glory of Greece. Recent news articles on the secret talks between the British Museum and the Greek government on striking a deal over the return of the Parthenon marbles to Greece, the fabulous stone friezes which adorned the temple and which Lord Elgin controversially removed, sprang to mind. It's no secret there's a Cambridge connection to this story since if a precedent is set for finally sending the marbles back, which many famous people and organisations have appealed for from all the museums that hold sections of it, the Fitzwilliam Museum might find itself under pressure to return treasured pieces of the Parthenon they currently have on display. I decided to get the full story from Paul Cartledge, an emeritus professor in Greek culture with the Faculty of Classics at the University of Cambridge, who's also a senior research fellow at Clare College, to find out about the history and fortunes of this spectacularly precious artwork. Tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Okay, I'm a a classicist and an ancient Greek historian. So I started off at Oxford and I did my doctorate there. I've taught in four major universities, most recently, of course, Cambridge, from which I retired in nineteen in 2014. I started 1979. So what fascinates you about the classics? Well, I suppose because I was linguistically gifted. So I started French and Latin at the age of eight. I moved on to ancient Greek at the age of 11. And I suppose the author who most caught my imagination was Homer. Homer's the author he's given credit for two great epic poems. One is the Iliad, one is the Odyssey, and they appealed to a young boy. We're here to talk about the Parthenon marbles. Now, Phidas and his assistants made them in the 5th century BC with um, marble from Mount Pentelicon. Why was that and what do they depict as part of the Parthenon? It's a very good question. The Parthenon technically is just part of a large temple. It's the particular chamber in which the sculpture of the cult image of Athena Parthenos, which means virgin, maiden, unmarried Athena. Athena was the goddess of war and wisdom and she never married in Greek mythology. Why was a building built there? 
because the original one had been destroyed in 480 BC, 479 BC, again, by Persians. There's a great big Persian empire which spread across most of the Middle East, as far east as Afghanistan and Pakistan, and they decided they wanted to include Greece in their empire, so they invaded, and the main target was Athens, and they destroyed what they could lay their hands on in the center of Athens, on the Acropolis. So as soon as the Athenians reckoned they had the money, it took a long time to raise enough money to replace what the Persians had destroyed, and they replaced it with something even grander. It's actually the most complex, the most architecturally distinguished monument of ancient Greece. It's a ruin today, but nevertheless enough survives. You can get a good idea of what it originally would have looked like. And what did it consist of? Well, many, many sculptures. So around the temple is a frieze, and this is about 160 meters of it, depicting sacrifice, basically, a procession of warriors and others on horseback, people bringing offerings to Athena. And then in addition to that, there are lots of mythical stories. So the Greeks had lots of stories about their ancestors' past, and one of them involved, for example, a race of Amazons, who are superhuman women who can do without men, they're warriors, they're rather terrifying. Well, they allegedly invaded Athens, but the Athenians resisted them in the dim distant past. So there's a series of sculptures on the outside of the temple depicting Greeks, that is, Athenians fighting Amazons. And there are other similar things. It seems to me to be a kind of epicenter of all the things that the Greeks um, held dear and precious um, at a moment of artistic and military triumph um, that the golden age of ancient Greece is represented by them, isn't it? Well, it is a golden age. In other words, I think the Greeks had others besides... But this is, yes, very famous. It's a bit like Renaissance Florence, if you like. So in the middle of the 5th century, the Parthenon was started in 447 BC. It was completed in 432, just 15 years to build this massive thing with a huge number of columns, huge number of sculpted images, all from, as you say, the Pentelic local marble. Now, um, th these marbles, uh, well, um, basically the entire frieze was um, uh, um, basically taken by agents of Thomas Bruce, the 7th Earl of Elgin, while Greece was under Ottoman occupation. Wasn't that a slightly cheeky thing to do, to remove all of those things? Well, it was um, totally cheeky, and of course he didn't manage to get all of it. So, still in Athens, where there is a museum, it's called the Acropolis Museum, which is on the top floor devoted to the Parthenon, you'll see quite a lot of what survived when Elgin and his agents got at the temple round about 1800. And so they took a number of the sculptors from the outside and a number of the sculptors from the frieze that you're mentioning there. And cheeky it was because the Ottomans, it's not at all clear that what the Ottomans allowed him to do is what he actually did. In other words, he probably was cheeky in the sense that he took far more than was anticipated, than any permission enabled him to do. Now, he said he had a firman that allowed him to do um, what he did, but, but no one could ever produce this document. Correct, correct. Um, um, and so um, that made the whole 
whole um, acquisition of the marbles um, extremely um, dodgy by most people's um, uh, uh, estimation. Um, uh, what is the current Greek position on having these marbles, um, which we now hold at the British Museum, um, return to, 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 to Greece? The Greek government's position always, and we're going back to the 1830s originally, they, when Greece became a state, a new Greek state, after the Ottoman Empire was uh, left behind in the 1830s, they demanded, they requested, let's put it that way, that what Elgin had taken be returned. That um, request sort of hung there until the 1980s when the culture minister of Greece, a famous actress, Melina Mercouri, renewed the request. And being an actress, she went to the British Museum and wept in front of the um, sculptures that were in the British Museum. But let me just add, it's not only what's in the British Museum that the Greek government wants to have back in Athens. It's all bits of the Parthenon that any museum museum holds. So a couple of museums quite recently, including the Vatican, which is under the control of the Pope, have agreed to give back parts that have been taken. However, the British Museum holds the largest amount of Parthenon sculpture outside Greece. Now, we have some parts of the Parthenon actually in the Fitzwilliam Museum here in Cambridge. Um, if um, a precedent was set um, in terms of um, the legal agreement which is being considered at the moment by the British Museum, could that actually mean that we would then be obliged to lend those artefacts from Fitzwilliam as part of a returning exhibition to the, the Greeks? Because that would impact on museums all over Europe, wouldn't it? Well, you use the word lend, and a <laughs> huge issue is ownership. So if Elgin's title <laughs> was originally dodgy... <laughs> then the British government, when it paid Elgin, it doesn't therefore acquire legal title. But within British law, yes, um, the British Museum cannot give away anything that it has because there's, in addition to the 1816 Act, there is a 1963 Act that applies specifically to the British Museum and a couple of other national... They may never give back, except under exceptional circumstances, for example, human remains, what they hold. So, the Greek government is adamant it will not accept a mere loan from Britain because that implies that Britain owns what they have and the Greek government won't recognise the British government's ownership of what it holds in the British Museum. So there's an impasse. Now, you mentioned the Fitzwilliam Museum, of which I was a syndic for many years. There is only actually one piece from the original Parthenon. And it's a thing that stood right on the roof. It's what's called an acroterion. So yes, if the deal is done and finally the act is changed, the British Museum returns what it has to Athens, then of course the Fitzwilliam Museum will follow suit. In January, Bloomberg reported that the former Chancellor George Osborne and the Acropolis Museum in Athens were closing in on a loan agreement that could entail, in quotes, a proportion of marbles being sent to Athens on rotation for several years. Does that mean that they're going to kind of negotiate some kind of joint ownership of them? Well, um, yes, you're right to infer that, but Bloomberg is merely one of several reports. Mm -hmm. And if you like, they're leaks because the talk, 
talks between Osborne as chair of trustees at the British Museum and apparently Prime Minister Mitsotakis himself directly, those talks are secret, so we actually don't know. Anything that's come out is a leak. And as soon as the notion of a loan was mentioned, a lot of people in Greece, including the Official Archaeologists Association, formally registered a protest. No, we're not talking about loans, we're talking about the Greeks getting back what is theirs. And so the other thing is this notion that you're quite right, it was reported as a rotation. But again, the Greeks want everything, not dribs and drabs. So one wonders whether a bit of politics was being played, certainly on the British side, because Osborne wants to achieve something as chair, and then I think to get back into politics, he was our Chancellor of the Exchequer. Mitsotakis has a general election in April, and I think he wants to use getting back some of the Parthenon marbles from, uh, from London as part of his campaign. But it's all murky. We're two sovereign states dealing with each other. This is not individual museum with one other museum. It's mm -hmm. government to government. That's what makes it very complicated. UNESCO, as you know, is a uh, an international body for education and culture. And uh, the latest meeting unanimously with one exception and you can guess what exception that was that's britain all the other countries voted that it was incorrect for the british to hang on to um, the Parthenon marbles. And I should just add, this is a unique case, as we who are campaigning to get the marbles reunited, we don't believe it has any implications for any other. Of course, it will put pressure on uh, museums which hold artifacts from other cultures. But nevertheless, we argue that the Parthenon is unique. Um, now, now to, to look about some of the fascinating history of the Acropolis, it was actually blown to smithereens, wasn't it, by, by, um, uh, during the Turkish occupation? Of, of yes, in six, um, yes. And that's what made all these pieces available in the first place. What actually happened when it was blown up? Well, I'm going to take you back a little bit earlier because um, the Parthenon, as a pagan, pre-Christian temple, when the Greek world became Christianized, it becomes the temple of the Virgin Mary. That's fine. This is, as it were, Catholic Orthodox Christianity. But when the Ottomans take over, they don't look so kindly upon a you know, Christian monument. At any rate, what actually happened was that uh, it was a Venetian, would you believe, attack, because the Venetians and the Ottomans were at loggerheads, and Venice controlled, for example, Crete, which is part of <laughs> Greece. At any rate, Venetians attack Athens, which is, as you say, Ottoman held in 1683 and somebody fired a cannon shot into the Acropolis which landed in the Parthenon which was being used as a, a weapons and um, armour store so a gunpowder <laughs> it went up so the middle of the temple that's the place where the original um, statue of Athena would have been, of course it had long since gone. Um, that was what was blown to smithereens in 1683. Fortunately, a Belgian passing by just the decade before had 
um, copied, he'd done, done a drawing of what he could see before the blowing up. So we know that quite a lot had survived down to the 1670s. And if that wasn't enough, there's also been earthquakes that have also damaged the Acropolis as well. Yes, there? but not anything like um, as much as this um, cannonball and explosion in the 1680s because... Think about it, Greeks knew all about earthquakes. Mm. The Spartans, for example, just 30 years before the Parthenon was built, had had an earthquake right on top of the town, which had killed many, many people. Earthquakes are, as it were, a normal thing. They even had a god, Poseidon, to whom they prayed to avert earthquakes. Please do not send an earthquake, Poseidon. So they knew all about So when they built, they built in such a way that things would not fall down uh, when an earthquake happened. Now, when the explosion happened, um, uh, all of the the marbles came crashing down. Um, What was the crowning glory amongst the the marbles? Was there one particular piece that that was the masterpiece um, of it? Well, yes and no. In other words, um, at either end of any ancient Greek temple, there's what's called a pediment, which is a triangular-shaped space into which you can insert freestanding sculptures. So for the uh, Parthenon, at the front entrance, which is the east, there's a bit of an irony. You go up the Acropolis and you actually see the west end of the temple, not the east end. So go round the other side, you come to the front. There it shows the birth of Athena, which is famous because she was born from the head of her father. This is Athena, daughter of Zeus, patron goddess of uh, Athens. But as far as the frieze is concerned, again, the key point there is that every four years, a massive robe was um, woven for a statue of Athena, not the one that's in the Parthenon, but one nearby. And it's thought there is an image of a robe, that that's the robe in question. But the main feature of the frieze is horsemen, many, many um, naked men, because, of course, ancient Greek sculpture typically depicted males naked um, with horses. And that, that's the prime feature of the frieze. Now, now all of these marbles, these wonderful um, pieces of ancient artwork, went on quite a a journey before they ended up here in Britain, didn't they? And what happened then? Well, what I think you have in mind is that the first lot that um, was taken down and then shipped, it had to go, of course, all the way to the port about uh, five miles away, Piraeus, sank um, off southern Peloponnese, actually part of the world where I uh, research. It was rescued three years later. That's the first lot, which went on a ship called Mentor, who is a character in Homer's uh, Iliad. And so, yes, uh, adventures, but uh, the, the rest uh, were, were quite um, safely transported. And so it must have been quite a task to pack them all up into oh, boxes and yeah. everything else. Um, so, um, I mean, Elgin basically stole them, basically, didn't he? And, and, and packing them up was... I mean, it's arguable that he, he exceeded his authority, um, even granted by the Furman that he said that he did um, hold. Well, and, and a number of bribes were also involved, oh, well. uh, uh, as far as I understand. He spent a fortune, <laughs> partly on the workmen, partly on bribing the officials. The Furman you refer to um, doesn't 
doesn't exist. In other words, there is no written record that Elgin was permitted to do what he did. The Furman we do have is a summary in Italian of what would have been a, um, what's the word, Turkish original. And it just allows him to copy things on that are actually standing on buildings, but he may remove things lying around on the ground. So the problem with that is that a lot of what he took was still on the temple in um, about 1800, and that's why he, I think, violated any conditions that he might have been permitted. Um, who else was appropriating art from Greek temples? Well, because Edward Clark was one, wasn't he, who donated... Uh, and he also donated several objects to the University of he, Cambridge. He at the did. End, he? Well, uh, this was a great period. Um, typically, the two peoples in contention, well, there are three altogether, but Germans, French and English. And this is the time of the Napoleonic Wars. And so one reason, I mean, a big, big reason why the Sultan of the Turks looked favourably on the English was that we were the enemies of the French and the French were the enemies of the Turks. So this kind of diplomacy favoured uh, Elgin very much. Elgin originally wanted them for his country house, his great seat up in Scotland. And then he found he was in debt, deeply in debt, so he needed to make money from them. In other words, to get back some of... It's thought he spent perhaps as much as £70,000, which is several millions in today's money. He got 35000 What did people think of them when they looked at them? Well, there were varied reactions. Byron, Lord Byron, was livid, um, the poet. He thought that Elgin was merely a thief, a robber, and it was disgraceful. And there were others who thought that they should be back in Athens, no matter how beautiful they were thought to be. Now, the, among the experts, some actually thought they were Roman period copies of Greek originals. Now, they knew that in the Roman period, yes, sculptors did copy sculptures from the famous 5th century BC period, but the thought that the whole lot should have been copied, that was quite rightly dismissed. So some people thought they were wonderful. Some people thought, no, no, don't waste so much time and money. But the British government did have a special commission and people gave their views. And very interesting, you can still read the record of what people argued on both sides. They then had a vote in Parliament and the majority went for the view that they should pay Elgin and therefore buy them and therefore acquire title to them as they thought legal title. Now this is Byron's poem. Dull is the eye that will not weep to see thy walls defaced, thy mouldering shrines removed by British hands which had best behoved to guard those relics ne'er to be restored. Cursed be the hour from when thy, their isle they roved, and once again thy hapless bosom gored, and snatched thy shrinking gods to northern climes abhorred. So that was Byron's um, yeah, the, poem. Yeah, the curse of Minerva. <laughs> the curse of Minerva. Um, so he, and he wasn't the only person to protest against the removal. No. Um, and he's, uh, there's a quotation here, the Honourable Lord has taken advantage of the most unjustifiable means and has committed the most flagrant pillages. It was, it seems, fatal that a representative of our country should loot those objects that the Turks and other barbarians had considered sacred. 
So um, he felt no. very strongly about it. Didn't yeah, that's he? right. Yeah. But as I say, divided opinion. But the majority view was, um, which is still the British Museum's line, that in some sense we saved these from some sort of thought of destruction. The problem for that argument is that actually not long after Elgin, so Elgin's about 1800, the Greeks actually achieved independence in the 1830s, and it's a generation later. What will the Greeks do with them when they're given back? Because you can't actually rebuild the Parthenon. No, no. Well, that's never been in question. They will be rehoused in the dedicated Parthenon gallery of the Acropolis Museum. So the uh, museum is on three floors. The first two are oriented in a particular way. Then the Parthenon gallery is differently oriented, so it doesn't sit four square on top of the previous two floors, but slightly at an angle to match the Parthenon itself, which you can still see out of a huge picture window on the Acropolis, and that's the point. And the other thing that's happened, obviously, is that there's been vandalism um, in the British Museum, hasn't there, where several of the marbles have actually been damaged. And it also, it's quite difficult to actually um, look after and maintain the, the marbles as well. So, um, on the one hand, they're vulnerable. On the other hand, they're delicate as objects as well. They, they? are. Well, um, the, the British Museum's case was that they, for 200 years, it still is in a way, hmm. have prevented what they have from suffering any more damage than they had already suffered down to about 1800. One problem was that in the late 1930s, the trustee of the British Museum is an art uh, dealer called Lord Duveen, who was a trustee of the British Museum and who gave a huge amount of money to have a gallery built and named after him to house the Elgin marbles, as they were then called. In the late 30s, he thought they were a little bit brown. And what happens is the original paint has been stripped off by the atmosphere over the centuries. And then underneath, there develops, on top of the marble itself, a patina, it's called, which is brown. And so that he thought they were not white enough. They should look gleaming white. So he hired people to go in and hack away with um, emery and carborundum and to get this wretched brown off to get back to the uh, white marble. The trouble is the brown patina goes into the marble. So when you take the patina off, you take the marble off. At any rate, this wasn't actually widely known until fairly recently, about 40 years ago, uh, a scholar called William St. Clair um, unearthed this very unseemly act um, th th these are, um, I mean, these wonderful um, artefacts basically um, encapsulate the glory of Greece. I mean, walking around the Parthenon is an absolutely fantastic building, even now, isn't it? To, to it so is. much atmosphere, so much, um, you know, so, so much central to the whole story of Greece. Um, uh, um, I, I wonder what will happen next. But um, what do you think will happen? Well, let me just take you back <laughs> one step, which is that I'm a historian, so I'm not here to say that everything about the Parthenon is 
what we today would think is absolutely wonderful. So I'll just make two points. Where did the money come from? A large amount of state money was put up for it. It's entirely, by the way, a public building. There's no private finance in this. And it's partly from um, local revenue, that is taxes, fines, that's the partly foreign revenue, which is imperial revenue. So the Athenians at this time were the leaders on an anti-Persian basis of a massive alliance, up to 200 allies who paid tribute. And some of that will have made its way into the financing of the Parthenon. The other thing is who built it, who actually humped the stones or hacked away and um, carved the, the sculptures? Well, Many of the people involved will have been free. They will have been Athenians or non-Athenian Greeks, but some will have been slaves because many Athenians own slaves. And we tend to think today that's an extremely poor way of behaving towards other human beings. So one has to make those points. What's the future? Well, I think um, in a peaceful world, a non-Ukraine world, that would be a glorious, as you say, um, tribute to artistic endeavour. It is the most fantastically sophisticated because of the mathematics involved as well as the aesthetics, as well as the craftsmanship, as well as the managerial skills that went into getting the whole thing from paper, from papyrus, to the real world. I mean, it's just an astonishing feat of human, social, political endeavour. Professor Paul Cuthledge, thank you very much indeed for sparing some time to talk to Cambridge 105. It's a fascinating subject, and I'm sure everybody will be looking to see what actually happens in the future. Thank you for having me, and let's hope for some good outcomes. A new sound for a new generation. This, this. is Cambridge 105. Viewing footage of how acrobatic pilots expertly synchronise flying in groups and drop smoke to light up the sky with colourful images which vary from painting a smiley face to creating huge patterns or even doing patriotic things with red, white and blue stripes in different smoke colours showed it to be a skilled drawing art indeed. It's not often that someone who does this kind of display rings you up in the morning and asks you if you want to go and fly a plane. Cambridge Aero Club's George Seeley is a competition skydiver and acrobatic pilot and he decided to give me a flying lesson and fill me in on a pursuit that combines expert skills and creating art on the biggest canvas available. I've always had an interest in aviation. My parents used to travel with business a lot so whenever we'd go away flying I'd be looking out the window or on a long-haul flight I always wanted to know what was going on on the flight deck. Can you take me up and see the captain? And um, so I developed an interest in aviation from a young age and then my father and mother went to a charity auction and across the when they arrived they arrived traditionally late and they had um, seen friends across the auction hall so they waved hands and accidentally placed the winning bid on a, a flight experience and with my interest of aviation they were kind enough to let me take take that flight experience and after having had control of an aircraft for the first time at a young age it, 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 it developed into what is probably my my biggest lifelong passion yeah and um, what kind of a plane are we going up in uh it's called a diamond da42 twin so it's a, a twin engine um aircraft made of carbon fiber in germany uh, very stable comfortable economical 
yeah, it's a, a nice aeroplane. And what's the flight plan? Uh, well, if you're up for it, we're going to go down to London um, and fly over the city, get a look at all the sites. We'll fly along the river, over Buckingham Palace, um, and just generally around the city, provided they allow us into the airspace, which they often do. And then we'll head back this way, maybe somewhere along the coast, about an hour, hour and ten minutes. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, now, you also do skydiving, don't you? Um, that's a very daring and dangerous sport. Um, it depends. It, 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 it's considered a daring and dangerous sport, but when you understand the equipment and the training and how you mitigate the risk in reality... There are other things in life that are equally, if not more, dangerous. You're just as likely to have an accident when you drive your car to the airport to come flying with me as you would if you went and did a skydive. Now, you've just been over in Spain doing some skydiving, and you showed me some fantastic footage of um, jumping out of planes and doing all kinds of amazing things. Um, is it as thrilling as people say it is? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it it's starts with the fight, flight or fight response. And then it turns to excite and delight. It's, 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 yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Everyone should experience it and give it a go. And, and have you had any hairy moments with parachutes not opening and things like that? Um, not exactly. I mean, those things, they do happen, but that's why you have reserve equipment um, and, a pro, you know, proper, um, you know, training. So those things, you know, they, they do happen, but the training teaches you to, remain calm, follow out your drills and deal with it. So um, Now you also do um, uh, um, organised flying as well which um, must be very difficult to um, choreograph. How on earth do you organise that? Aerobatics. Aerobatics. Again, training, you know, with anything in life if you have the right amount of practice and and training then, then you can achieve anything. Uh, I've just been out and done an aerobatic sortie over to the east near the wind farm near the A11 and I haven't flown in quite a while, but it was really, really nice. And yeah, it's, it's it, it, like I say, it's all about the more often you do something, the better at it you get. Um, when you drop smoke and things like that to do um, massive things in the sky, I mean, is that all care carefully planned on a computer before you go out? No, 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 no. It's like drawing on a piece of paper. You, 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 uh, you just do it freestyle by hand. The process is such that there's an environmentally friendly um, oil-based product. It's almost like a baby oil, but it, it, it has a, a, a carbon offset um, environmental friendly option to it, which is how I, I very specific over where I source the um, fluid from. And essentially what it does, it injects that fluid into the hottest part of the exhaust of the engine and that instantly vaporizes and leaves a, a, a white trail of smoke essentially behind the aircraft then you can draw patterns in the sky with it uh, what are the variety of patterns in the sky that you can actually draw with those it's unlimited imagine pencil on a piece of paper it's just a constant line and it's neither it's either an on or off but you can turn it on and off and you get dots and of course or you can draw a circle and then for argument's sake put a smiley face in the middle or do love heart whatever it is you can you can draw but you have to understand that it's it's an either an on or off situation and so you have to kind of visualize in your mind the 3d element of how are making that shape can someone actually book um a, an artistic experience like that in the sky for their birthday or something a hundred percent they can yeah. yeah i am probably not the 
best placed person for that with my skill set and ability at the level I am at the moment. But a friend of mine certainly is a guy um, called Mark Jeffries, who runs a um, aerobatic display team called the Global Stars. He's based out of Little Granston Airfield in um, in Cambridgeshire, and uh, the team have a, f- a team of uh, four aircraft. Um, they're the highest performance aerobatic aircraft that um, have been made in in their um, category, single engine piston, and he does all sorts. He'll do weddings, he'll do parties, birthday parties, gender reveals, multicoloured smoke, you know, if you're having a girl you can have the pink smoke, or you have the blue smoke, Um, put a love heart in the sky, which he did for one of my best friends for their wedding. Um, He's been doing it for years, he's been world champion aerobatics a number of times, so incredibly talented. And that type of unique sky art is very rare, and I would dare say he's probably the best in the world for it. And he's my mentor, he's the guy that taught me the basic shapes that I can do, such as a smiley face, but he's, you know, put initials in the sky, and 80th birthday will draw a big 80, and he's even done funerals, believe it or not. And what's the spirit like amongst the pilots when several of you go up there to to, to fly in a synchronised way? Oh yeah, it's electric, it's fantastic. Yeah, you're doing something that has an inherent um, amount of risk associated to it, but at the same time, skill and... uh, and it's you know the team camaraderie it's all it's good fun people on the ground enjoy it the pilots enjoy it even more now one of the other things that you do is um you practice in a wind tunnel skydiving that must be quite exciting yeah that's that's fantastic so flying a wind tunnel in a flying whether it's in the sky skydiving or in a wind tunnel is like in many ways it's like yoga you 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 move your body in ways that you day you know from day daily life you don't tend to do um and when you're in the sky or in the wind tunnel you're not supported by anything on earth you're not supported by a chair or a ground so you can manipulate your body in ways that you can't in any other fashion and so it's like it's like being free to move in in space and to manipulate parts of your body muscles in such a way that you don't and you develop a skill you know it's something that you get quick enjoyment from because you learn um, very, very fast. And, um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And there's a stick in between your legs, um, which won't really be doing a great deal. We'll get airborne, I'll fly the aircraft to cruising altitude, stick it on autopilot, and we'll just fly towards London and, and so on. I'll give you a chance to fly the plane a little bit as well at some point. Um, so if I say the words... Oh, one second. Hiya. So that's good. We've got we've got um, the guys in London are saying you're all good to go. So yeah. So basically, if I say the words, you have control. Yeah, that means that you can fly the plane. You're in command. You do what you want and turn over there to the right. We're flying what's called VFR, visual flight rules. Basically, means you don't need to look at any of the instrumentation inside the aircraft. You just look out at the horizon, which is really good today. It's great weather and um, if you I'll point things out to you so I'll say oh, you see that building over there or that or that you know field or the coastline whatever it is and you fly towards it um, looking out of the window if you see lots and lots of sky it means you're going up if you see lots and lots of ground it means you're going down um, and that's as simple as that uh, if I say the words I have control yeah 
it just means it could be anything. It could be I've seen another aeroplane, so I want us to fly a different direction. So just take your hands off the controls, and I'll fly the aircraft. If at any point you don't feel well, just tell me. We can. We're 20 minutes. We can be back on the ground again. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Fantastic. Cool. Cambridge Tower Golf Club, outside Hour One. With information. X-ray request engine The future strategy for Cambridge's creative sector was the recent focus of Cambridge Arts Network conference entitled More Than Nice to Have, The Value of Creative and Cultural Economy for Cambridge. In an uncertain world where 65% of students will be going into jobs that don't even exist yet, the creative sector in Cambridge is looking at how Cambridge is going to evolve and the future place of the arts in that process. Deputy Head and Associate Professor of Cambridge School of Art Idris Rasuli presented a new vision and narrative entitled A Thinking City. The whole concept of The Thinking City, what exactly is it? Well, it's, it really is about bringing in a new viewer view of, of Cambridge um, uh, City, uh, really around the idea of how we connect and create a network, but also how do we kind of renew the relationships between humans uh, and, and institutions and the city itself. It's a, it's a vision rather than an idea on its own. It kind of looks at, okay, you know, now in the next 5, 10, 20, 25 years, how do we look at Cambridge and how does it evolve, or evolve as a thinking city? Um, so it's a set of concepts about how we should, um, we should go forward um, with the art scene in Cambridge. Yes, so, so you know, arts, and it, it kind of looks at the, the role and value um, and, and also, you know, how arts could really evolve and make this happen. It really is about driving that vision, uh, but not necessarily only for arts. It, lo it looks at the whole community, so businesses, uh, the health sector, the cultural sector, and the museums, all of that, you know, key parts of Cambridge coming together as part of the vision. Why is it necessary to have um, a specific mindset? Well, it really is around, I mean, we're talking about culture here, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so it really is about behaviours. It really is those, you know, how do we kind of, consider the location that we're living in, the neighbours and the people and the different cultural sectors or communities based in here. So that it requires that mindset um, as to how we deal with them, how do we look at them in, in a sense from, from a more um, cultural value side of things and how do we understand them. How much of a part does Cambridge Arts Network Conference play in terms of maintaining a vision for Cambridge's artistic future? I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great network to bring in all of those, you know, leaders um, and, and key players within the arts network in Cambridge. It also kind of allows a, or brings a, it makes a platform for those discussions. So it really is, I think, the, the, it's a, in, the, in the kind of funding side of things, in the technology sector, we talk about, you know, seed funding, for example. I, I, from my point of view, CAN or, or Cambridge Arts Network is that seed funding opportunity that allows for ideas to flourish values. Um, do art colleges like um, Cambridge School of Art um, have a problem at the moment in terms of industry wondering about the viability of the arts for the new industries because um, you know <clears throat> basically the government um, wants to see things turn in all the projects to have a kind of uh, an outcome that they can see in terms of funding them um, and, and often don't actually see the value of art uh, in terms of the creative 
activity that's needed for future industries. Yes, I mean, we, we have recently started to look at mm. how, you know, how our graduates end up or what, do, what would, would they do, especially around um, you know, employability skills and, and what is the value of those employability skills. I mean, one thing we pointed out at, at this, you know, this morning's um, uh, introduction uh, that you know, the, 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 the fifth most important out of ten key skills is creativity, uh, looking at you know, the next five, ten or twenty years. So we're focusing on creativity as a skill set, but also a mindset of you know being analytical, being you know really able to collaborate and work with others. So so we're moving the arts graduate as someone who kind of goes and works for someone mm-hmm. to more entrepreneurship, to more kind of business minded, and, and and the one that really kind of considers the impact of their practice ethically and practically. Who's going to join into this process of creating a Cambridge arts mindset, the the the, the, the thinking city? Well, the idea is that you know it's it, it's it's a it's a bigger project mm-hmm. rather than just an idea itself mm-hmm. or a concept. So the the next step would be to kind of get everyone within the network to come together and 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 look at key questions. I mean, this morning we talked about you know how do we look at sustainability of these ideas, how do we look at funding of these ideas, and how do we look at really the the the, the more ripple effect of these ideas. So so we were looking at those ideas coming together as a network. Um, and, and asking those questions, finding approaches in new ways, and then taking it wider, quite bigger, at, 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 at a city level, where we kind of invite communities to really come in and feedback and, and, and start to look at how we look at those social enablers and cultural enablers as part of the thinking city. Now, social enablers um, obviously um, you know, uh, have a lot to do with um, access to, um, to, to resources, uh, openness of, of the university and the arts community, and also questions of, of um, equality in the city. Um, do you think that, that, I mean, um, that the council and, and the various organisations have been promising um, better um, social enablers for quite some time, but um, is it realistic to really expect those to materialise soon? Well, I think the key strength of, of Cambridge mm-hmm. as a city mm-hmm. is because it is quite small. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it could allow for those things to happen and also manage it. Mm-hmm. We have been kind of um, discussing and, and also working with some of the key museums here in, in the city to look at how we open up, you know, open up the, the, the museums, but also the activities within them, but also how we as an institution open up our own activities, our own offerings to the wider landscape. We then looked at opening up Cambridge's architectural and historic assets with new signposting for finding the unknown things around the city and how the Cambridge creative experience could be greatly enhanced. Council's Cultural Services and Events Manager Francis Alderton says the arts need relevance to economic industries in the city. It's part of our remit as Cambridge City Council to host the Cambridge Arts Network Conference. Um, but for me personally, it's just so important to meet uh, new faces and also have those links with um, external organisations and also have those discussions that we're having internally in the council with with the rest of Cambridge and the Cambridge community and getting the ideas from people who are actually living and working in the town. Um, what kind of a role um, are you going to be playing in the future of um, the Cambridge arts scene as it's kind of being redefined at the moment? Well, we have many different roles as part of Cambridge City Council, but we do want to develop the role of cultural services with the rest of the community of Cambridge. So one of the things that we're doing at the moment is writing our cultural strategy and we hope that that can clarify exactly what Cambridge City Council's role is in terms of supporting cultural activity but also how we connect and how 
the rest of the cultural community has a discussion and a collaborative and joint discussion about a shared vision. But delegates like Greg Buckler, a director of Cambridge 105, who's also secretary of the Strawberry Fair, criticised, along with many others, the lack of inclusion in Cambridge as increasingly unequal. And this scepticism about what the strategy would deliver was noticeable. It seems to be town and gown has divided even more than it used to be. And uh, you see a lot of frustration of people who aren't really, they don't really, they're not really engaging, they're not able to engage with a lot of the issues that the, the bigger city needs to tackle because they've kind of just been left to the sidelines, it seems to me anyway. I then joined a breakout with Owen Garling at the University of Cambridge on re-imaging Cambridge, which looked at how people view Cambridge culture and social infrastructure and plans for creating spaces where people can interact and put new stuff to use. The aim is to repurpose public spaces, getting people to think differently. Well, after nearly tripping over a Pompeii-like frozen figure sculpture lying in the corridor made of white plastic, which was just one of many surprises dotted around the art school, I dropped in on Joseph McCullough, head of school at Cambridge School of Art, to hear what he had to say. What's happening is obviously responding to interests in students and, and their art, their creativity and their thinking. So obviously the, the, the generations of students we're getting now very interest, diff, very interested in things that you know beyond before weren't so. It, uh, it's changed, so they're, they're very much driven by the sort of social aspect of art and design, and they're wanting to. Uh, they're far more understanding and sensitive, obviously, to the climate, to social justice, um, and they're very much more geared around work that has a purpose. So I think that's kind of in the last period, and we're responding to that as an art school, it's been really interesting how we're responding to that, looking at that very much that social purpose of creativity and how it can be applied. So, How are you tackling the problem of its um, viability as a career at the moment? It's interesting when you look at the, uh, the reports from people like Nesta, uh, which actually talk very much around creative economies, the creative industries are one of the fastest growing economies in the UK and it's seen internationally. So on the one hand, it's we have that, but the advocacy of studying art and design or creativity um, is we're, we're very much advocating that. So there is, there is work, there is that sort of the industry, but the reality is still very much the same in terms of it's still, you know, how to make a career out of art and design it's still challenging it's um, still it's still tough you know but we want to support those students you know. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, we've been looking at the cambridge zeitgeist um, <laughs> the, the promise of yeah. this artistic future this culture of an enlightened city this international art destination public yeah. artwork schemes um a thinking city all of these things um how realistic do you think all of that is and is it important to your students it's it is absolutely, I think, I'd say realistic. Um, we're already seeing that, you know, the, the, the creative startups increasingly in the city. There's the whole area of career tech, awful acronym, but creative technology. There's a lot of movement of business and uh, work that comes into a city. And you need creatives, you need designers, artists that, that will part, be part of that, that change. So. There is a um, that, that there is that positive aspect of of the city 
changing and placemaking, but at the same time, the context of the challenge of setting up and the cost of setting up in, um, in the region. I soon found myself encountering a group of sizeable giraffe sculptures under the care of Peter Marron from Charity Break, who introduced next year's Charity Art Sculpture Trail. Cambridge Standing Tall is in response to the uh, super cows about Cambridge trail that we had back in summer of 2021. So it's the second trail that we're bringing back to the city. Uh, and effectively, we want to showcase all the wonderful work of uh, the artists around the county and to raise some money and awareness of Break the Charity. So Break's an interesting charity, isn't it? What does it do? Okay, so Break uh, uh, is a regional charity that effectively has a range of services looking after disadvantaged young people and their families. Uh, in Cambridge specifically, we are uh, looking after those children who are leaving young care and into adult independence. So effectively, we have a project that sets them up in a shared housing. We offer them the skills and support for them to get a future career. And we look after them for as long as they need us for. So we have a, a lifelong offer for our young people. And so we're here today at the Cannes Festival to try and reach out to artists and to give them the opportunity to paint one of, and decorate one of our lovely, large, uh, two and a half metre tall giraffe sculptures. Um, so we will be opening soon at the beginning of Mark, uh, March our call out to artists and we're encouraging anybody, whether they're professional or amateur of any genre, to basically uh, apply to submit their designs where the sponsors have an event where they can choose which artists to work for. So it's a brilliant opportunity to showcase uh, for artists to showcase their work to the general public. We're looking up to 40 large giraffes. The ones that are here today are our mini G's, which are the ones that will uh, be open to schools and community groups to take part in the project as part of our learning community program. Our ambition is to have up to 90 uh, giraffe sculptures, 40 large ones and 50 uh, smaller mini G's, which form part of our learning community program for schools and community groups. It'll be a free trial accessible trail and there'll be a, a, a trail map and an app for people to use to navigate around. At the end of the trail we have a wonderful auction night where the larger sculptures are all auctioned up for break so yes it's a it's a brilliant evening and uh, it culminates from a, a fantastic trail into a fundraising event. Further debate covered heritage as the door to culture for all museums in Cambridge and how their colonial history needs coming to terms with to give out a more diversity conscious message. British Antarctic Survey talked on opening up heritage as far as the Antarctic. Digital marketing woman Suki O joined a discussion panel with ARU economics professor Emmanuel Giovannetti on the experience of people working with creatives and the issues involved in exploiting and exploring possibilities in local creative industries. The event eventually wound up identifying growth areas for Cambridge featuring digital games, live events and social media a need to break down the creative barriers for young people and school leavers supporting companies to take in apprentices for learning skills and also aims of putting structures in places for facilitating opportunities. A requirement to broaden our definition of what culture and creative industry is. A drive to maximise the ripple effect in events and cultural activity and how we harness economic success stories. A need for developing strengths in the creative community with key skills and then advertising them to business. Also a recognition of a new sense of awareness of cultural heritage 
and what that could mean for the community using this traditional space for wider purposes, more diverse and more imaginative inclusive projects, and a commitment to breaking down moulds and developing new ideas for culture changing meaning by new interactions with public artwork artefacts. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the programme. I hope you've enjoyed Cambridge Arts Roundup and we'll listen in again soon.